0: Welcome, everyone, to Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me, and I appreciate you continuing to subscribe. i am so excited to have David Butwin as my guest today. He is a freelance writer, uh, a journalist. Uh, he's written for the Christian Science Monitor, the Saturday Review, Esquire, Sports Illustrated, and Gourmet Magazine, and also, at the very beginning of his career, at the Minneapolis Star. He is also the author of A Minnesota Kid in Search of Heroes and Ghosts. Great to have you.
1: Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. I'm in Maine, which uh, I like to think of as uh, Minnesota by the sea. Oh,
0: <laughs> it, it has kind of the same state of mind in Maine? It does. It does.
1: Um, although it's maybe Minnesota in the 50s or 60s up here on mid-coast Maine, but
0: there's a similarity. Oh, that's great. So let me start by asking you this. Uh, what, what prompted you to write this book? Well, I think I'd been
1: mulling it and messing with it for a long time while I was doing a lot of other writing uh, and I'd put it aside and I told my daughter, you know every writer has a book in in, in inside a drawer in his office and then i i I, I think it was around nineteen fifty four my sister my older sister had been at a, a, a high school reunion central high, and a classmate of hers, a guy I knew in the neighborhood, uh, wrote something in a local weekly the what was it called, a, a Highland villager uh, about the old neighborhood. And this kind of spurred me on. I got kind of more interested than I had been in looking back. And so one thing led to another, and uh, I just I kind of started exploring the, the earliest days I could remember.
0: That's great, yeah. So you say in your book that you were born in 1939, but first open your eyes on April 28th, 1949. What happened on that day?
1: Oh, yeah. In the book, uh, I talk about uh, the first opening baseball, opening day baseball game I went to. Um, I think uh, the school let us out, Maddox grade school, and we'd get on the streetcar, Snelling, and go out to university and go to the ballpark, Lexington ballpark. And uh, I was already, a—I called up, I was a rabid fan. My mother corrected me. It's rabid, David, not rabid, but I was a rabid fan already and uh, read the papers every day. And and so it, baseball was what grabbed me early.
0: So you were a Saints fan. Uh, were the Minneapolis Millers the, the, the enemy back then?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do a chapter in the book uh, about public enemy number one, and it had to do with a particular Minneapolis Miller. But, um, yeah, we laughed about Minneapolis, although we had friends and relatives in Minneapolis. But we, we thought it was kind of a strange place, it did have better lakes or more lakes, but, um, uh, and the Minneapolis Millers played at Nicollet Park, and it was what everyone always called a band box. And um, I only got to the, the place once. It was actually a high school Twin City game. It, it, it just felt like enemy territory, so I, I never really saw a Millers or Saints game there.
0: We don't really have that anymore in Minnesota. Like a, an intense rivalry between Minneapolis and Saint Paul. I mean, people from their respective cities will will joke about the other sometimes, but I can't imagine <laughs> going into you know behind enemy lines in the the other twin city, you know, and and feeling that hostility.
1: Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it was brought out by the teams, the sports uh, teams. Uh, there were there were hockey teams from each town and uh, that sort of thing, and. Um, I guess beyond that, you're right. Minneapolis kind of always looked down on us. We were the smaller, but we thought we were quainter, and we had Scott Fitzgerald, and they didn't.
0: (laughs) That's true. Yeah. So uh, you grew up in Highland Park, right? Well, uh, not technically.
1: Um, That was kind of a funny point I made in the book that um, uh, I grew up on two blocks the other side uh, of Randolph. It would have been north of Randolph. So that didn't put us in Highland Park, um, and Highland Park was what we we thought it was a pretty ritzy place. Um, but uh, a lot of my friends uh, came came to school from Highland Park, so you know we let them in.
0: What was it like back then? Well, um, you know, I have
1: to say it was a simple simple time, sort of like Maine is right now. But now I'm I'm sort of joking. Uh, it was. You know, kids out, the, uh, out on the block playing step ball. We had all these games we played. Um, uh, Maddox Playground was tarred over every uh, early summer. But as soon as uh, we could, we'd be back on, on the field playing. And sometimes over at SPA, St. Paul Academy was on Randolph. And uh, we thought it was kind of a goody two-shoes school. It was. Um, so we were tough guys, you know, from the other side of Randolph, we thought. Um, and I guess um, there were there were things about it that seem sort of storybookish, but um, I guess one of the things I I well remember from early on were uh, were a, mur- a couple of murders that happened in the forty eight and forty nine. I think we wanted to talk about that, and one was um, the Geraldine Mingo murder of uh, uh, August nineteen forty eight. Um, that sort of uh, set set things aside. Um, that th- Those days for a while, we weren't just playing and joking because it was a pretty serious thing.
0: Yeah, Geraldine Mingo. Um, I was doing some research on a book of my own and came across the name Geraldine Mingo, you know, peripherally. Mm-hmm. So I searched the name online and found that you were connected to the case and, and learned all about your book, which was kind of cool. So... What do you remember? I mean, you you actually lived through it. I mean, it was, it hit close to home for you, right?
1: It did, literally, um, I guess, because it was about a mile away, and um, it it happened in, in August that year. I mean, the only other thing that happened in August that year was that Babe Ruth died, and that made the, that took Mingo off the headlines for a day. But, um, she was uh, found dead, uh, I think it was off Pinehurst, in Highland Park, a mile away. And um, from then on, you know, for the weeks through that summer, it was creepy. Uh, it, every day the paper had um, more material on it. It, it was never solved. Uh, and in the book, I tried to go back and um, talk to the detectives and police about it um, uh, from this period, uh, and for a while, there was even a possibility of some uh solution to the case, and then that that didn't pan out but um you know I talked to a couple of my friends when when writing the book, and uh, one woman Jane Fable that I went to a grade school with said um told me that she and her uh, brothers uh, slept or she had her brother sleep out on the porch on McAllister Street for a week, being afraid of it and um I, I, I remember in the book saying only a week. I was more than a week that I was afraid. Um, and there was a point that's uh, that fall when my sister and I went to um, a friend of hers on Halloween just to top off the night. And her father then uh, I believe drove us home. And his he's, he was saying, "Well, you don't want to be out on the street. There, some of these cars don't have good brakes." But I always thought that he was saying. Um, you don't want to be out on the street. There's creeps out there that could do you harm. But meanwhile, there there were other. There was an, a murder almost at the same uh, day or week. Uh, Juanita Wendell, a young babysitter, was abducted and killed. And then a little while later, I think January of nineteen fifty, it was a somewhat more dramatic story. Uh, a young woman got off a bus on a blizzardy night. Uh, near, I think, sort of Cretan or Cleveland and uh, maybe Princeton, one of those streets over there, and was abducted and killed. And there was even some talk about whether her, uh, the person she was living with, the man of the house, I think it was, was he an uncle or someone? He was, he was a musician. Could he have been involved? Well, that was never solved. But uh, I talked to a remember a friend of mine, uh, from from high school, not that long ago, when I was doing the book, and he said, um, "Yes, he remembered Mingo, but as he put it, I was a Mary Agnes Kabiska guy. I mean, he was he was being silly, but um, it was right near his neighborhood. So his neighborhood was rocked more by that. Mine, a mile from his, was was Mingo territory. So
0: she she was the victim, the third victim, Marianne.
1: Yeah, yeah. Of the yeah, I think it was over about fifteen months or something like that. She would have been the third one, and uh, she uh, her her uh, killer was never found either. I don't think any of them were. So um, uh, yeah, that 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 caught, that caught us off guard. But you know, there were, there was more going on then. Um, I'm trying to think of what else was going on. I think one of the interesting things in that period when I was growing up was. I had an interest in people who who had a sort of otherness about them. And this included a couple of um, high school star athletes with Japanese names, which was very strange. I mean, St. Paul, let's face it, uh, was white bread country. And uh, to see a name like that in the box scores and, and in the sports page was strange. And what they were, two of them, and I got in touch with both for the book, um, they had come from the camps uh, uh, where they were put away with other Japanese of, of, of American ancestry um, uh, out West. And uh, one was Tom Kirahera and uh, he went to Monroe and was quite an athlete. And the other was Akira Shizaki. And I remember we had a, uh, Marty O'Neill was the guy who did all the sports casting. All I think it was WCCO. I'm not sure. Um, and I, uh, he, he called this guy a Cairo. Well, I knew from living in Hawaii when I did this book, you don't, it, that name was mis mispronounced, but he was an important person, um, on this in, in the sports, uh, sports world then, uh, the two of them were, so I kind of tracked them down and, and got, got to know them at least, well, I actually met Tom in person and the other, uh, by, by email and telephone, uh, and then there was a kid that we went. I went to, I um, didn't go to school with him, but I met him via uh, sports. There was a young guy, it, we, I was probably in the eighth grade, and we, we played something called flag football. You probably know what that is.
0: Sure, yeah, I played it too, yep. I bet you did. Where are you from? Well, I was born in Bemidji, grew up in East Bloomington, but lived a lot of my adult life in St. Paul. So I okay. know the area pretty well.
1: Okay, yeah, okay. Well, then you know that. And, and that was a matter of pulling the flag out of the guy's rear end instead of, instead of t- touching him or tackling him. And we had a game one, uh, one day with a, a school from sort of the mechanic arts capital area. Uh, and there was a kid that we could not keep up with. He was flying left and right. We couldn't tack- or tackle him. We couldn't grab the, the, the flag out of his rear end. And uh, he, they beat us. And I, I remember uh, just being kind of fascinated by him because he so he sort of spoke with a I could tell uh, a foreign accent. He seemed from somewhere else. And um, so, uh, when doing the book, I got in touch with my good uh, boyhood friend Gary Phillips, who lives now in Edina, and he he knew something about it. He said, "Oh, that was that was Gursky," uh, and he went to mechanics. I didn't know that, but I started looking him up, and I found that online somehow that Gursky uh, had married. Uh, He was still alive. Um, And strangely enough, he was three years older than I was. So as I wrote in the book, he was a ringer. I mean, he should not have been playing with us, but he didn't seem like an older guy. So maybe he was 15 and we were 13 or 12, something like that. Then I tried to get in touch with him. uh, And uh, I finally I didn't talk to him. I talked a couple times to his wife. He had been on a cruise. He it was hard of hearing. Um, now he had a, a pacemaker put in, and she was telling me this on the phone. So I, um, which all it kind of amazed me that this you know Will of the Wisp kid was older than I am and and was now so almost incapacitated. But I found his sister, and she had gone with him to mechanics, and we talked a little bit about it um and this this was the guy he was he and uh, the family had left uh germany or poland uh, they weren't german there certainly weren't german nationals i think they had been poland or russian um possibly jewish i, I didn't quite nail that down um and had uh, left after the war they were what i i shouldn't be saying all that said this before they were what we called d- uh, displaced persons dps and um it was it was not a cool thing. Um, it, the DPs were not treated very well in America. And um, there were polls taken that uh, um, Americans didn't think we should let them in. And, and, and there there was a limit on, on their coming in. So it was this otherness about him that kind of fascinated me. Um, and then I thought to myself when I was, oh, wait a minute. I thought, I know another DP very well, a, a good friend of mine. He's an uh a well-known artist in Minneapolis now, Leon Husha. And I call Leon, or no, I I happen to be in the Twin Cities. Leon, were you a DP? He says, you're damn right I was. And um, he told me about coming over. He was born, um, he was Ukrainian, I think, but born in a camp in Austria uh, just after the war and had come over. Uh, And he told me about uh, kids that he had to fight uh, on the west side when he lived there and, and and out on west 7th street because um of being someone different talking different and all that so that was my dp story and and another, the last dp story I, I could tell was that um my mother um was trying to make ends meet um she ran a bookstore my that my she and my father had run and he died in, in the late late 45 um she um uh, during this period, took in, I guess you'd say, immigrants or DPs. Uh, they'd come to our house one at a time, and she'd teach them English. She had a blackboard. I remember that. And you'd see these sort of. I remember a man. I wouldn't say he was disheveled, but he uh, he came up the walk in a kind of a gabber, old gabardine suit and um, would sit down with her, and she and, uh, she she'd teach him uh, she teach him English. was probably talking Yiddish to him. And then again, I was also talking about these these American of Japanese ancestry that this caught my attention in those days.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. I'm actually gonna to go back to the to the Geraldine Mingo case in just a bit. Sure. <laughs> so I, I do have some more questions, but I, I do want to point out to listeners, many of whom are, are from Minnesota, uh, many of whom probably recognize your last name, Butwin, because it's connected to uh, an uncle who owned a very iconic store in downtown St. Paul, correct?
1: That's right. Yeah, Butwin Sportswear. I still have a few jackets from back then. Yep.
0: Do you remember going in and visiting? And... Oh, absolutely. Um, uncle
1: Jack, he was my father's uh, older, uh, one of two older brothers, and uh, he ran uh, Butwin Sportswear. And he was kind of a man about town, Uncle Jack. And He'd come over and rattle his, uh, the coins in his pocket, and give me a quarter or something. And he was a wonderful man. And um, uh, he took me to my, one of my first games. It was the opening night game of 1949. I had seen the day game. Now, the, you know, for, for, for the opening night, this was more for business people and older people who didn't, weren't working during the day. And people knew him left and right. We walked down to our box seats. Um, And he ran, uh, but when sports were in the Finch building down in uh, 5th and Wakuda, and that was near, I guess you call it Lower Town now, but that was near um, Union Depot, which is also uh, writ large in my memory. Uh, And, um, oh yeah, the jackets, uh, they were turning out, what we we later called hero jackets, you know, sometimes with the leather sleeves. Um, And uh, I would go through... Because you know us, us little Butwins were always given jackets, and I'd go through with my cousin Sam up and down the aisles, and I, I'd point to one and say, "Oh, what about that one?" And he'd he'd say, "Ah, oh, that's schmutz. Uh, schmutz is Yiddish for trash or or dirty." Uh, I say, "Okay, what about that one?" He says, "Okay, you want that?" Um, so we were always clothed in Butwin jackets.
0: Oh, that's great! And, and your your parents owned a a bookstore in Dinkytown, right?
1: yeah um they did my father had, had a small bookstore first in downtown st paul and then um, he opened up a store called book hunters uh, in Dinkytown. it was down the street from bridgman's that much i knew um and uh they ran it uh from the early 40s and uh, uh he died in late 45 my mother i think finally sold it in 49 um uh, but it was a, it was a popular store. Uh, well, I wouldn't say popular, but it was, a, I think it was a serious bookstore and he was quite the book, uh, the bookaholic you could almost say. He knew his books and um, a real bibliophile, that's a better word. Uh, and uh, it, I, I think um, a, a couple of uh, Oh, a couple of customers from the university, not then, but a little bit later when my mother was running it. One was Robert Penn Warren. And I think Saul Bellow used to drop in. I'm just name dropping here, you know.
0: <laughs> oh, Bridgman's. Oh, my goodness. Did, did you know Bridgman's is making a comeback? They, they opened a Bridgman's in Woodbury last year.
1: Oh that's great yeah we love Bridgemans. i I remember those those ice- those cones and um butter brickle was one of the family favorites,
0: yeah, they still have butter brickle,
1: do they? oh, that's great, yeah, no, that was fun and um the the cover on the cover of the book, the Minnesota Kid is um a painting that my uncle jack Perlmutter um who, who was in in Washington came out and visited us. And painted, and it uh, it's a true Minnesota scene because it shows the um, some of the grain mills in the background and this uh, winding um, rail uh, rail line going off into the distance. And I think he he painted it right almost from the front of the bookstore.
0: That's great. So I do have a, a few more questions about Gerald Mingo. So it was August tenth, nineteen forty eight, uh, when she was killed. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Pretty young, pretty young woman uh grew up in Shakopee, right? And and she moved to St. Paul on her own.
1: Yes. Um she lived in Shakopee, which I, in the book I say was uh as exotic sounding to me as Timbuktu. I didn't know from Shakopee then. Um but we saw that name uh, that place name every day in the paper. She came to live as as many young women did as a domestic working for a family that I later knew, or or knew relatives of, they were the Batwiniks, not to be confused with the Butwins, although people did confuse us sometimes. Um, uh, and and so she she uh, was there really to watch the kids. And uh, that night she was supposedly had gone off to the Highland Theater very nearby, but it was discovered that she either didn't do that or actually did go downtown and went went to a couple of bars uh with her friend uh, a young man a Larry Lundeen i believe his name was and he put her on a, a streetcar sending her home and that's the last she was ever seen um and uh she was 17 attractive she looked older in the pictures i mean she looked well into her 20s and kind of you'd almost say stylish but um she was just a seventeen year old kid, and her body was found in the backyard uh one morning early by a man named Saul Selly, S E L L E. He looked out out of the back uh window of his house. He had let his dog out, and he saw the crumpled body, I think out by the driveway or off by the alley. You know, only Minnesota, only Saint Paul people in Minneapolis know what an alley is. We don't have them much in the east, but um she was out by the alley or beaten body stabbed body and um so that's what that's what started it off and uh lundeen was taken down uh with a, de- by a detective to look at the body and um he kind of trembled but he he was somewhat suspected for a while but he uh it was that idea was dropped and uh you know no nobody ever uh nobody was ever really connected to the murder but um she all these years later when i was researching it i, I realized that she had been working for the betwinicks and two doors from that betwinick and they but they they ran the um downtown also uh, a furniture store the betwinick brothers furniture and a couple of doors from the house where she had worked um uh, lived a friend of mine, a, a grade school and high school friend, Conrad Batwinnick. and so I got in touch with him and learned a little more. He 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 was young and didn't much remember her, but his sister did remember her, <clears throat> and I interviewed her, talked to her when she when she was living now in Washington. She had actually remembered going out to Shakopee one time to take the girl home. The police people I talked to. Uh, I talked to three different cops about it. And actually, there was some activity um, all these years later, you know, in 2010 or whenever I was talking to them, that a a woman came forth and said that she had questioned, whether, somewhat questioned that her late husband might have been the guy who did it, uh, because he was a womanizer and and got around, played around a lot. But at any rate, um, uh, she... uh, the police never really came close to nailing it. But what happened that night was, uh, yeah, Larry Lundeen apparently put her on that streetcar and went his went his way home, which was the other direction to the east side of Saint Paul. He took his own streetcar home, and somehow after the um, after she got off, she was abducted after she got off the streetcar, uh, and they didn't use the term then but possibly raped i mean she was really savaged and um uh, it was it was never known but she only had to, had to walk a couple of blocks to get home from the randolph probably the randolph hazel park streetcar um and and she never made it home
0: hmm. so at at the time was lundine uh the only suspect that you're aware of or were there some others Uh, I don't think they got too close to anyone. Um, And I I think he was
1: only nominally a suspect because he had seen her, been with her that last night. And at at her funeral, he was seen trembling and saying her name over. And there was some suspicion uh, or talk that they had planned to get married. And perhaps even, although this may have been made up and it was never proven that she may have been pregnant. I don't think that was that was the case but all of this came up when I, I went back and talked to the uh the St Paul police department um and the last woman I talked to um I mean the last police person I talked to was a woman uh a Minneapolis woman uh who worked the case uh and she was she was a cold case expert and she was fascinated by the case and she she really felt that that there hadn't been enough solid work on the case back then. And also even the suspicion that perhaps as she read the 500 pages or a thousand or whatever it is of the case, that maybe the police poo-pooed it a little bit, you know, maybe this was a girl asking for it, you know, that kind of crap. And um, uh, this, this woman, I don't have her name in front of me and I should because she, um, she was a terrific source, but she, um, she, she felt that, the case didn't get enough attention back then. But then she had to drop it because there just wasn't enough to go by, enough to go on, I should say.
0: Is it still considered a an open case? Technically, yeah, it, it is. Um,
1: uh, I, I think there may have been with her uh, a foundation or something that was providing the funds for uh, investigating cold cases, and that ran out. So, yes, I mean, it probably probably would be, although, you know, it, what is it now? Seventy-some years since since that night in August.
0: Yeah. So, it is very interesting and odd, right, that three murders of young women within 15 months happened in St. Paul. I'm sure plenty of people have wondered, but... Has anyone tried to make a connection between the three? Uh good
1: question. I think that was uh bandied about back then. Um I I, I think there probably wasn't. Um but uh there wasn't a connection, but it, it was always possible. And I think eventually all the the um theories led to nothing. And uh so these these two cases uh just just sort of disappeared into the mist, and, and we don't know now what happened to them. The Kabiska case was fascinating, too, um, in, in its way. I mean, much different. She was a sophisticated young person. I think she had been to a concert at the U at Kaufman Memorial Union that night. But, you know, again, alone on a, on a goddamn streetcar uh, in, a, in a blizzard, um, you 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 don't wonder and and yet, yet at this time I mean I'm not this is a ridiculous connection to make but my, my sister when she was twelve got on a train in, in St Paul Union Depot and went alone to Washington D C to see our relatives and came back the same way and uh, there was a somebody or other on the train that looked after her and, and checked on her but it's uh, people did things. More than went across town, they went across country and, you know, mostly survived. And when they didn't, it was, it was, it was sad, disgusting, awful. Um, but, you know, I guess those were, those were such different
0: times. You have a, a real nostalgia for streetcars in St. Paul, don't you?
1: Absolutely. Um, we took a streetcar everywhere. Most of them were those old clanking things with a cowcatcher in front. Um, and then uh, along came, although quite early, because I remember them, um, what they called the PCC cars um, that had a kind of a streamlined deco look. And those were the ones that ran on University Avenue and also on the, the old St. Clair Payne. And not too many years ago, my wife, through a friend of ours in, in New Jersey, found a little foot long model. Of that very St. Paul streetcar with the yellow sides and the green trim, uh, it sits in my office back in back in New Jersey, and it says "to St. Paul" on it. Um, and it's an exact, we could say, a, a replica of those, those streetcars. But streetcars took us everywhere, and then they kind of went out in the 50s, and um, when things were changing over, and the interstate highways were coming in, and now now we had uh, buses everywhere. But I. I kind of miss the streetcars, and I've I've been in other cities and looked for them and written about them because um, there are still some old ones around, as in New Orleans and uh, San Francisco and places like that. Uh, And actually, when I went to write a magazine story about um, light rail and the existence of old streetcars, I found that the street very... Uh, those PCC streetcars from the University or Payne, uh, I should say, University or St. Clair, had been sold to Mexico, I guess, in the 53, 54, and now they were had re, reappeared in Newark, New Jersey. I learned that. And so, uh, as part of my article, I, I went for a few miles to Newark one day and got on the streetcar that I may have ridden in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul in 1951. It was kind of cool. And I love I love standing in the back, the sort of vestibule in the back of of those old streetcars going downtown. Um, Some of them are open air and you'd be back there with the older guys. You were either smoking or bullshitting about baseball or something. And, uh, you know, you just felt like you were in another another world back there. Um, And, and, you know, they had wicker seats. Uh, There was something charming about them, um, even to a young kid. And, and uh, there was um, a sort of a habit. I, I, was, I was not a, a real heller. Uh, I, I didn't do this, but there were kids that would actually yank down the catenary pole or whatever it's called, the overhead pole that conducted the, the, the streetcar with electricity. And uh, they'd, they'd tear it down and then go running away. And the motorman would have to jump out and chase them and get the, get the pole back up. I didn't do any of that. But, um, I, I, I loved riding the streetcars wherever they took me.
0: That's great. Yeah. So you got your, your journalistic start, uh, working for the Minnesota Daily and the Minnesota, the Minneapolis star. Well,
1: right? yes, um, I, I did actually, I started writing for the Maddox messenger in the seventh grade. I covered sports, of course. Um, and then in, in, uh, in high school, I was sports editor of the Central Paper, and then I went on to the university, and I wrote sports every day for four years uh, at the U, um, which was great fun. I was sports editor the last couple of years. I got sent to the Rose Bowl and all of that, and, and then uh, af- after that, um, I sort of drifted away. It was probably best for me because the next job I got was at the Minneapolis Star, and it was not sports. It was probably the best thing that happened to me unless I was going to be a, a lifer in the sports world.
0: So you had a you had a byline, right, with the
1: Star? Oh, yeah. Um, byline every t- – yeah, I had a byline from the seventh grade on. I think I was Dave mostly for quite a while. And then in, uh, from Minneapolis to Honolulu at some point I became David. And, uh, oh, yeah, I mean, I – when I was on the Minneapolis, um, star, I was, a my first job was, uh, a, a police reporter. So, you know, I covered a lot of this same stuff that we're talking about. And, um, I have to get to work at, or let's see, I, yeah, I had to get to work at six o'clock, um, at, at the police station in Minneapolis. And, uh, I, I remember there was a, a, a wonderful old gentleman who was my sort of rival, competitor from the St. Paul papers. Um, but he worked and lived out of Minneapolis and covered for the St. Paul Dispatch. And I remember I'd say to him, um, God, I hope I get a byline on that. And he'd say, Oh, he'd say, um, Well, that and a dime will get you a cup of coffee. You know, he was always trying to put down all this stuff. But of course, a byline mattered, yeah, I, it was always important. And one of my—I know you've you've done this already—but one of my great thrills, uh, front-page byline, was not something I. And this may have presaged something in my career, something I dug up on my own because almost everything you did for a newspaper you did on their time and and your your eight hours on duty. But I was in um, the Grandview uh, Barber Shop in. I believe July of sixty-three. That was the summer before I went out to Hawaii to live and work. And uh, who walks in but T. Eugene Thompson? And he had just been um, uh, put, uh, had just been released on bail for the murder for hire of his wife, Carol. And uh, I looked and I think, oh, I better start making mental notes. I was already in the barber chair, so I wrote a little piece uh, first front page piece for the minneapolis star ran the next day uh, or the day after about this little man who sat reading an archie comic book uh while i was um rabidly trying to remember everything i saw and fin- finally watched him get up and have his have, fall asleep in the barber chair and have his haircut and go out the back door so um that, that was that was my role. the other was that i I went to the scene of the murder I was sent there that day um and I saw the blood stains on the snow of the very morning it happened but anyway, you've been over that already,
0: yeah, uh, and for my listeners who are thinking right now that that sounds a little familiar. um, I interviewed Bill Swanson, oh sure, it's interesting that you got to 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 meet him in person. He was just as uh strange and eccentric as Bill Swanson makes him out to be in his book.
1: Yeah. 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 It it was very odd because, um, a guy walked up to him in the barber, uh, in the barber shop and said, um, something like, uh, uh, we still on for, uh, or no, Thompson said to him, are we still on for drinks on Thursday? And the guy said, "Mm, I think not. Or something like that. Can I take a rain check? Uh, and, uh, so it was. It was just so you know like fifteen minutes of description of this guy, who was who was oh and then and then for the book, um, I tracked down because that's kind of what that book and the other memoir are are, are really founded on um, research. Now it it's, they aren't memoirs in what happened to me when I did this and, wh- and why I ended up there. There's there's a lot of bringing it up to the. To date, up up to the present, and I talked to the uh, man who ran the barber shop and cut um, his hair that day. I found him all those years later and had a wonderful talk with him about it. Uh, And then after that, I talked to the barber shop owner's daughter as he was in very bad shape in the hospital. So I kept in touch with them uh, because that's where we all went for our haircuts in those days. Um, You'd walk in and say. Flat top with a bald spot. You know, that's what all the jocks had, and that's what we all had. Um, Sort of, what else would we call them? Just crew cuts, I guess. And that's kind of what the way he cut Thompson's hair.
0: Yeah, it's a very distinctive look for him when you see him in the pictures. He's got the the glasses and the... (laughs) The, the flat
1: top. Right. That was right next to the Grandview Theater. I, I love that area. It was, a, it was a hike from where I live, but that's where we all went to get our, I don't know, what was it, 50 cents or something for, for a haircut. Um, the three barbers were lined up. There were three chairs, and uh, they were all uh, fun guys to, to deal with. But the thing I, with me in those barber chairs is, is um, I had a, tre- a tremendous um, uh, ability to Laugh at when, when he'd bring the razor down my neck. And so I, I'd always try to think of the grimmest thing I could think of in my life, maybe, maybe the Geraldine Mingo murder, so I wouldn't start laughing um, because I was very ticklish.
0: <laughs> so that murder of Carol Thompson uh, was another one, basically, in the neighborhood you grew up in.
1: Yes, a- absolutely. That was, yeah. Um, I, my, I had to write a second day story. Uh, well, the murder happened. Let's see in the morning. So no, it it made the afternoon star. But for my next day's article, um, I talked about um, the uh, other murders in Highland Park over the over the not so many years before, and uh, how I don't. Know, my lead was something like um, you won't find many doors unlocked in the Highland Park district of Saint Paul today. Blah blah blah. Right, um, and then I. I talked about the the um, murder of Carol uh, Thompson, but there had been others. Uh, another one that happened very near there, a classmate of mine's father, uh, Herman Pastor, uh, was a sort of, I don't want to say a gangland guy, but he had connections, and he, I believe he was in the slot machine business and all of that. And um, uh, he was shot through a window in his house in about 60, or 59, 60, or 61, I was in college and killed. Uh, and I don't think they ever solved that one. Uh, but that was nearby. And that, that had been just a, a couple of years earlier. And uh, Don Pastor was, uh, his son was a classmate of mine. And I remember Herman coming to our eighth grade graduation. He was very slick. Uh, and he had this cool little. A miniature camera it almost came out of his buttonhole or something, and he was taking pictures of us and then the next thing I knew he was shot dead in his in, in his parlor uh nearby the thompson house
0: oh goodness wow yeah
1: so so
0: that um that
1: that got my attention you know and and it was so much for me close to home because I lived on the other side of of Randolph, the other side of not within a mile of uh Highland Park or, or uh, closer than a mile but within a mile of these murders so and the, and the Cabisco one was close the other one I had mentioned the girl that was abducted that was down somewhere near the capital I think but otherwise Highland Park had the uh, uh had it, had the murder uh murder capital at that time
0: wow it's so interesting that that they were all happening there i mean for those people who know St Paul Again, as you've already stated, Highland Park is considered one of the more upscale neighborhoods in the city.
1: Right. Yeah, and and still is. I remember Cecil's delicatessen. I mean, we had our places to go in Highland Park, and St. Catherine's College was was sort of on that side of things. But um, uh, yeah, for that period of time, um, uh, murder was was front page stuff, and and Highland Park was. <laughs> was the place for it, I guess. I mean, it's not as if you walked in fear, but that summer of 48, we, we certainly did. We were very aware of it. And the papers with the headlines every day and the pictures every day of uh, Jerry Mingle, she was called by her boyfriend, uh, peering out of the dispatch in Piner Press. press. Um, it caught, it more than caught your attention.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. So when you go back to St. Paul now, where do you go? What do you do? What places do you visit that remind you of your childhood?
1: Well, the the first thing that that hit me when I went back, and I haven't been back for a while. I need to get back. Um, the the great elm trees that overhung uh, Palace Avenue and all the tr- all the streets in our neighborhood, which really the only thing that gave it any distinction. out with that dutch elm disease years ago so and trees have have come in and somewhat shaded the street but um i'd go back now to um the maddox playground there is no more maddox school Um, but there's a playground and tennis courts which i mean tennis would have been unheard of Uh, i think you could have found tennis courts maybe at possibly at st paul academy then uh i i'd miss right now um the St. Clair Broiler, which I used to love to go to at St. Clair and Snelling, and uh, I would I would just uh, walk the neighborhood. Definitely go downtown. I used to love um, Rice Park. Uh, was a sweet little park with the li- great library on one side, the court uh, the courthouse on the other, um, uh, and and it. It was uh, the center, some, somewhat I think, of the um, winter carnival when the, there'd be a a, uh, a castle, uh, an ice castle there. Um, and I, I love downtown. I just walked the streets of downtown. I probably wouldn't know much of it anymore. And of course, I don't. I wouldn't. Uh, uh, I wouldn't forget Minneapolis because um, my mother had moved there and I went to school in Minneapolis. My sister had lived in Minneapolis, so. Um, I'd, probably, I'd probably hit the Mill City, too. You know, I liked the Uptown District and some of the—and definitely the campus. And Dinkytown, I'd go back there.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm, I, I really missed the St. Clair Broiler as well. They had the, the most delicious waffle fries.
1: Oh, boy, yeah.
0: And then uh, I'm sure you're, you're, you're aware of this, too. For many, many years, William Kent Kruger, the, the famed uh, fiction writer from Minnesota— wrote his books at the St. Clair Broiler. Oh, I didn't know
1: that. Is he the mystery
0: writer? Yeah, yeah. He he writes a lot of stories about northern Minnesota.
1: I should look that up. Yeah, I love the broiler. And, you know, even before that, it was called, this is before your time and way back in my time, it was called the St. Clair Sweet Shop. Um, I think it was more of a dessert place, coffee and dessert place. Um, so... I'm trying to think of what it was. that I'm, I, I remember I took my mother there last time I saw her, um, and uh, she, she wanted, we, we'd, I picked her up at the Shalom residence way out by Como Park, and it was a snowy day, and uh, I said, come on, let's go get you a real meal. So I we went to the, uh, uh, the St. Clair broiler, and uh, she, uh, she was dying for, um, what was it she wanted? do you know what my mother wanted that day? I'm trying to think of what it was. Uh, uh, It was definitely not kosher. I'm trying to remember what it was, but she wanted coleslaw on the side. And uh, I've been back a couple times since. It was was kind of a a family family meeting place.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that place is sorely missed, that's for sure. So you have a website uh, let's talk about your your book and and how people can contact you if they would like to purchase it what would you suggest
1: Um well th- yeah, the the way to get the book is to go to davidbutwin.com um the the website and there you can see how to get the Minnesota kid book or the one or the one about Hawaii uh and and then that's, that's the way you do it. Um, there's no, actually no other way. Now, the only catch is um, I'm, my stash of books is back in Jersey right now, I'll be back in a few weeks. And I'm the, I'm the one who packages them and sends them out. I have plenty. Uh, so that's how you do it. And you can read up on the book, the two books, and a little bit about me uh, uh, on a very pretty website that my wife, the artist and graphic designer, put together
0: are people able to finagle an autograph out of you? Oh yes,
1: absolutely. I'll, I'll,
0: yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm the guy who
1: uh, puts the book uh, in the little uh, envelope. Um, I'll, I'll write anything you want on it. Sure. Uh, And, and that's, that's a fun thing to do. And then I'll pop it in the mail and, um, and you'll get it a few days later.
0: That's great. Well, well, thank you so much for for coming on and sharing some of your, your memories and stories from your book. This has been really, really interesting.
1: Well, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And thank, and by the way, where do, where have you lived in St. Paul?
0: Oh boy! <laughs> oh, okay. I, I lived I've lived in Lower Town. Um, I owned a house on, on Daly Street, off of West Seventh. Oh yeah. For a while, I lived in the Lincoln Court apartments. I was obsessed with John Dillinger's shootout at the Lincoln Court oh, apartments. Boy. There you go. Years. Yeah. And I actually moved into that apartment building just so I could, this is a a strange stage that I was in in my life. So I could kind of picture in my head as I would walk through the hallways, what what happened on that day in in, uh, 1934, when he fought it out with with, uh, St. Paul police officers and federal agents, he and his girlfriend, and they they made their escape. But yeah, wow. um, I lived on Portland Avenue. Um, sure. Oh, yeah. From William Mitchell School of Laws. So, yeah, yeah. yep. Um, it's funny. Uh, um, yeah, actually, my parents lived on,
1: in Portland at one time, um, and and there's there's some um, uh, '30s crime stuff in the Saint Paul. I mean, in the Minnesota Kid book, um, harking back to something uh, that my father had remembered. Um, it's not Dillinger, but Babyface Nelson or somebody makes, a, makes an appearance. So that, that, that might interest you.
0: That's great. Yeah. Something else to look forward to. Yeah. Well, well, thank you again, David. This has been fun.
1: Well, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much.
0: Again, I have been speaking to David Butwin, author of A Minnesota Kid, in search of heroes and ghosts. This is Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. Until next time.